We are going to be in Psalm chapter 34. I loved, uh, I loved singing that this morning. Um, I have a greater appreciation for this psalm now, having done some, some research on it. I knew a little bit about it, but preparing for this sermon, um, I, love, I love hearing that song. I love hearing it sung. I love singing it with you. So what I'm going to do is I'll go ahead and read the psalm. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into the message this morning. Psalm chapter 34 says this. I'll read the heading above uh, the psalm as well. It says, Concerning David, when he pretended to be insane, in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out, and he departed. Verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is someone who desires life, loving a long life to enjoy what is good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil and do what is good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears and rescues them from all their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. Let's pray. Father, I'm, I'm grateful to be back. I'm, I'm grateful to be here with my church family. Father, we're... we're we're so honored to be able to sing praises and magnify your name together. Lord, we're grateful that we have a time and a place where we can sit, remove all distractions from life, and just get in your word and learn more about you and honor you with, with our thoughts, with our, with our actions, with our voices. And Lord, I pray over the next couple of minutes that you would do just that, that you would remove distractions from us, that we would completely center our minds and our hearts around your word that we would give you honor where it's rightfully due, that we would be better, better people, better Christians because of it. Father, I thank you for this time, and I ask that you would bless it, and I pray that you would be glorified through it. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we have here this morning a psalm of David. Many of the psalms are believed to have been penned by David, yet a lot of them are not in any way able to be necessarily connected to a specific moment in his life, none that we can read about in Scripture, uh, at least. But there are several psalms attributed to David that point to or are indeed a re in reflection of a specific event in his life that we have the privilege to read about 
somewhere else in the Bible, which I think is a really, really cool thing. This morning, we've read Psalm 34. It's a familiar song. We, we sung it together this morning, as well as many other services in the past. And it's, it's a psalm many believe to be penned by David in the cave of Adullam. You'll, you'll see in most Bibles, and I read it this morning, several of the Psalms have headings above them. It's in, it, those indicate something specific about that particular Psalm, of which this one read, concerning David, when he pretended to be insane in the presence of Abimelech, who drove him out and he departed. Now, Okay, if you would, I want us to journey back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. The verses will be on the screen. I want to read this account because if we're going to walk through this psalm in reflection of a specific event that happened in David's life, I think it's a good idea for us to figure out exactly, uh, gain some context of what it is that David is writing about. So 1 Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse 10, the Bible says this. David fled that day from Saul's presence and went to King Achish of Gath. But Achish's servants said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Don't they sing about him during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. David took this to heart and became very afraid of King Achish of Gath. So he pretended to be insane in their presence. He acted like a madman around them, scribbling on the doors of the city gate and letting saliva run down his beard. Look, you can see the man is crazy, Achish said to his servants. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have such a shortage of crazy people that you brought this one to act crazy around me? Is this one going to come into my house? So David left Gath and took refuge in the cave of Adullam. When David's brothers and his father's whole family heard, they went down and joined him there. In addition, every man who was desperate, in debt, or discontented rallied around him, and he became their leader. About 400 men were with him. So it's at this point in David's life where he has been anointed the future king of Israel, and yet Saul, who is the current king, is in no way a fan of David at all. It's jealousy and pride has overtaken Saul. And on multiple occasions, Saul has tried to have David killed or tried to kill him himself. This was a situation in the life of David where David is now aware. He, he has, he's discovered with certainty Saul's murderous intentions for him. So what does he do? He flees his home country to Gath. Now, what is Gath? Gath is a city in Philistine. Okay, that might sound familiar. Yes, that Philistine. The Philistine, the same country that produced Goliath, the giant, that David himself defeated. So, as a matter of fact, Gath was Goliath's hometown. So keep that in mind as we walk through this account. While there, David was brought before the king of Gath named Achish. Now, I want to just make a distinction here. Achish was most likely the proper name. Like, my name is Marty, okay? So his name is Achish. Abimelech, though, which is what this psalm refers to, okay? Abimelech uh, might very well have just been a title for the king, for the Philistine kings, like Pharaoh in Egypt. Pharaoh is not his, his name, like my name is Marty. Pharaoh was his title, okay? Like president, okay? That's, that's the dis- difference here. So it's talking about the same person. 
But when David discovered that the servants of Achish, of King, of, of King Abimelech, were, were leery of him, as they should be, this is the guy that killed their giant, this is one of the most profound warriors in all of the surrounding countries, he decided in that moment, okay, they're starting to figure out who I am. How can I, they might want to kill me. So how can I get out of this? What does he do? He decided in that moment to pretend to be insane. I mean, I'll get you out of it, right? Start acting a fool. And they're like, who is this crazy guy? And get him out of here. The trick worked. He was allowed to leave. So to which he fled from Gath. And we read he took refuge then in a cave of Adullam along with his brothers and his father's family. And then also this band of degenerates, for lack of a better term, followed him, about 400 men, men that were desperate in debt or discontented, the Bible says. And David becomes their leader. That's a miraculous story of salvation, if you really think about it. Here's, okay, so here's David, who is being sought after by a man who wants to kill him. He flees his home country because of that, goes to the preeminent enemy of his home country, the the Philistines, He did this on multiple occasions too. And then he narrowly escapes the king of Philistine as well. So he's just being hit from all angles. His his life is being threatened from all directions. Now, as I read this episode of David's life, I kind of began to see that this is not probably one of those memories that David wants people to remember him by. Okay, I'm, I'm a victim over here and I run over here and make this rash kind of premature decision to flee to my enemy country and hide out there and then they discover who I am so now I had to act like a crazy person literally drool on myself and scribble nonsense on the city gates and they were like who's this nutcase get him out of here and they let me leave like this was not the most noble time of David's life it's just not a highlight that he probably wants to be remembered he had to have known that he was unwise in this. And upon escaping, though, he saw the Lord's mercy throughout that entire situation. So today, with all of that, I guess, historical context now in mind, I want to walk through this psalm and make four observations. I want to draw out four instructions from the text from David himself, who penned this psalm, and find some implication and application for us today, and then I'm going to tie it all together at the end. So if you're a note taker, or if you have a handout, you can go ahead and fill in the first, uh, fill in the blanks. Point number one is this, bless the Lord with unending praise. Bless the Lord with unending praise. Verse one, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will boast in the Lord. The humble will hear and be glad. Proclaim the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. Let me ask this question. Is God worthy of our praise? Because if we really believe that's true, which most of us, I would say everybody in this room probably says yes and amen to that statement. If we really believe that's true, why are we so flippant in our praises to him? I want you to notice the language of David here. He says, I will bless at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. This is coming from someone who, let's say, had a a difficult life. 
It's at this point in his life that another man is seeking to have him killed to the point where he has to flee to enemy territory for his own safety. And yet I will bless the Lord at all times. It'll never end. Whether my life is great or terrible, I will bless and praise God. Notice that he says his praise will always be on my lips. Some translations say literally will always be in my mouth. This is not simply a praise in heart only. Oh, I have so much praise for God within me. No, no, no. Uh, if anything, Jesus himself states in John, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 45, that the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So if you have so much praise in your heart, it should show in your mouth. So we walk around and we say, I, oh, I bless the Lord all the time. You know, it just within, within my own heart, like God is just so magnified. God is so blessed. I boast in him all the time. Well, the Bible says that if you have so much of that praise for God in your heart, your lips will give service to that, will, will show what's really in your heart. So I will bless the Lord, yet I curse others with my lips. Not only that, he said he's going to boast. In who? Not in anything that he's done, but in the Lord. And not only that, he claims that the humble will hear his boasting and be glad. The word used there, which is translated humble, can also mean the afflicted or the oppressed. So when David was boasting of the Lord here, he knew that those in his presence, remember David's not by himself, remember that band of 400 men that followed him that were kind of just in a dark place in their life, in debt, discontented, discouraged, they would hear him boast in the Lord and be glad. I can't tell you how many times when I'm on worship, I take one of my in-ears out because I love, there's nothing I love more than hearing the congregation sing. I got to do it this morning, not even being on worship. Like sometimes I just stop singing, close my eyes, and I love hearing other people boasting in the Lord and blessing the Lord with their voices because what does that do? That encourages me, I hear it, and I become so glad and so thankful. And then, not only that, he says, proclaim the Lord's greatness. Some, some translations say magnify, right, as we just sang. Magnify the Lord's greatness with me. Let us exalt his name together. So it's not enough now that David is praising God by himself, but he invites others to do the same, to participate and what does it mean to magnify something? See, when you place something underneath a magnifying glass, if you've ever done that in your life, which I'm sure most of us have, some of us have done it with ants in the sun. Don't do that. That's not good. And when I say others, I mean myself. I did that growing up. Okay, so when you place something under a magnifying glass, it doesn't actually make that object any bigger. All it does is perceive that object to be bigger. That's what magnifying glasses do. And so this is what David believed praising God does to others. Now, we cannot in any way, shape, or form make God bigger than he is. God is bigger than anything in this world. And yet, our praising of God, our proclaiming of the Lord's greatness together does what? It can perceive in other people's minds God as bigger when we bless him, when we boast and proclaim and exalt him. It doesn't make him bigger, but some other people who might be skeptical of God or, or have been viewing him in a certain light, when they hear the Lord's people magnifying the Lord's name together and proclaiming his name, 
I, I, like when we were in Mexico and I was hearing other people singing in Spanish and I had no idea really what they were singing, but I kind of did. And I was singing along with them because the words were on the screen. Like there was something even in that where I didn't even understand all the lyrics. God seemed bigger to me in that moment because we were magnifying the name of the Lord. So bless the Lord with unending praise. Not only that, point number two, seek the Lord who rescues and protects. Bless the Lord with unending praise and seek the Lord who rescues and protects. Verse number four, I sought the Lord and he answered me, rescued me from all my fears. Those who look to him are are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. Now this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. It's David. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. We now have in these verses David's testimony of what just happened to him. But it's in a very unique way. It's interesting. He kind of jumps back and forth between himself and then the reader, the hearer of the psalm. He's almost like inviting them into what he's experienced. He recognizes, listen, I'm not the only one that's probably had this experience, but let me tell you about my experience and invite you into what happened to me. So I sought the Lord, and here's what he did for me. But anyone who looks to him will be radiant and their faces will never again be ashamed. And then he goes back to himself. Now me, a poor man, I cried out, the Lord heard me. And guess what? Anyone, anyone, any one of you who fears the Lord is rescued and protected by God. So let me ask you this. What does it mean to look to the Lord? What does it mean to look to anything? I look to my wife in a certain situation, or I look to my best friend in a certain, or hey, Pastor Fred, I'm looking to you for a fill in the blank. Say, I often think about, in that expression, I think about a coach saying that to their star player, right? In the final moments of the game, there's a penalty, okay, I'm gonna use a soccer analogy, sorry. There's a penalty in the 90th minute, okay? Manchester United versus Liverpool this Monday, 3 p.m., turn it on, okay, tune in. There's a, there's a penalty, it's, it's, it's 0-0 because nobody scores in soccer, right? And, and it's in the 90th minute and there's a penalty and Eric Ten Hag, the manager of Manchester United, looks to Cristiano Ronaldo and says, hey, I, I'm looking to you in this moment. There's pressure there, right? They are completely relying on you to pull it off and to make it happen. That's what it means to look to somebody. So those who are radiant with joy, never again to be ashamed, are those individuals who are looking to the Lord, who are utterly and completely dependent on God with their lives. They look to him. Paul actually says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that we all, with unveiled faces, are looking to him as in a mirror, at the glory of the Lord, and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. No wonder we're who, uh, those of us who look to the Lord are called radiant by the psalmist here. Because when we look to the Lord with unveiled faces, those who look to him in complete reliance with their life, we are unveiled and we have the honor this, uh, that I don't fully understand what this means to be transformed and reflect the glory of the Lord. 
So in that darkest moment of your life where you feel like I have nothing else to offer and you feel like you've hit rock bottom and then you finally turn to the Lord and say, God, I need you more than anything else. We're told in that moment, in those moments that we, our faces will be radiant. So I'm urging you today to look to God. When the world says to look to yourself, look to your circumstances, look to your things and your stuff, the Bible clearly calls us, look away from yourself and look to God and keep your gaze on him. I mean, look what's going to happen. And by the way, those who are radiant, we are told their faces will never be ashamed. So in that dark moment of your life, when you fully rely on God and you feel helpless you feel like you have nothing left to give and you say, God, I'm giving you everything. Where we ought to stay, by the way, we ought to live there. We just give it over to him. We're told that our faces will be radiant and we'll never be ashamed. God would never forsake one who seeks, looks to, and trusts in him. We can have confidence about that now in our lives as believers and we're going to one day in the future have vindication of this truth that we shall never be ashamed. David here even refers to himself, though, as a poor man. So is David poor, literally? Does he not have any money? Well, I mean, he's running around. He's trying to keep away from someone who's trying to kill him. But no, that's not what he's referring to here. He's talking about the state of being that he's in. He's essentially saying of himself, listen, I didn't have any resources to bring about my salvation in that moment back in Gath. I had nothing to give. Every single one of us needs that revelation. We have nothing to give towards our salvation. Nothing. We just sang about all of the miraculous things that we can boast about and bless the Lord and exalt his name in. In the, the last song that we sang, but what is the final, final phrase of that chorus? Yet not I, but Christ in me. It's nothing I've done. I'm just a poor man who cried out to God and he rescued me. Every single one of us needs that. David knew this from experience time and time and time again. And incredibly, as he was indeed rescued from the city of Gath and made his way to the cave of Adullam, still not all is well in his life. He still has someone after him. He's still a hunted man. And yet at one of the lowest points, seemingly he had a lot of those, at one of the lowest points in David's life, he knew that he had this angel of the Lord encamped around him. So that phrase, the angel of the Lord, is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. Many times, uh, the research that I showed about 50 times in the Old Testament, this angel of the Lord appears. Now, there is some tendency by some Bible scholars in these narratives to equate the angel of the Lord with God himself. It's, it's um, usually this figure is there to serve as like a divine messenger, mediating communications between God and man, but it's appeared in other aspects as well, inflicting disease, wiping out armies, things like that. Some people even attribute that to Jesus Christ before he came as a fully man, he would appear in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord. I'm not here to debate that. Either way, the reason I wanted to remind you of the historical context of which this psalm was written, this is indeed a psalm of joy and triumph and praise. He was rescued from a very serious situation. 
But it's easy to forget where David is and where he ended up. It's not like he was rescued from that and then all was well. No, he went and hid out in a cave with 400 losers. Still on the run. But even when we're in the valleys of our life or we're hiding out in the caves of our life, that is so lame, but I'm going to use it anyway. Even when we are still in desperate situations, it seems, we can still praise God. We can still recognize God's presence of protection. David did. We can as well. Bless the Lord with unending praise. Seek the Lord who rescues and protects. And as a matter of fact, he protects and encamps around those who what? Fear him, which leads me to my third point. Fear the Lord and lack nothing. Fear the Lord and lack nothing. Verse 9. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, for those who fear him lack nothing. That's where I got that sermon point from. Very clever. Young lions lack food and go hungry, but those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. Then he says, come, children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Then he asks a rhetorical question. Who is someone who desires life? Loving a long life to enjoy what is good. Who doesn't want that? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil. Do what is good. Seek peace and pursue that. See, fear has such a negative connotation in our culture, in our society today. It at times then can be difficult, I would say, to really wrap our minds around, even Christians, to really wrap our minds around the concept of fearing the Lord, like we can, okay, so let me go back to Genesis chapter 3. We can actually see evidence of what most might think of when they think fear of God or fear of the Lord. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10, Adam and Eve at this point had sinned. They did the one thing that God told them not to do, which was to eat of the fruit of the knowledge of tree. Uh, eat, I always screw that up. Eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And immediately their eyes were open to the fact that they were naked, they were ashamed. And when they heard God walking through the cool of the garden, which I think is like the coolest thing, what does it sound like for God to walk around? I don't even want to know, but I think it's pretty cool to think about. They hid. And God calls out to them, right, and says, hey, where are you? Not that he didn't know where they were, but for them to realize where they were. And what is Adam's response in Genesis chapter 3, verse 10? He says, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. See, too often we treat the fear of the Lord as shying away from his presence and his holiness because we feel sinful and we feel ashamed. And yet, there are many Hebrew and Greek words that can be translated fear in the Bible. And although they can have different meanings, Anytime they are used in reference to fear of the Lord, they always have a positive connotation, every single time. We're not talking about fear in regards to being ashamed and not wanting to be in God's presence, no. Uh, so Old, Te Old Testament references to the fear of the Lord speak positively. They speak of good intentions. They speak of this fear of the Lord serves to make a person receptive to God's counsel, to his law, to his word. Uh, two of the most famous passages is Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, or Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That fear of the Lord 
Okay, so uh, is the beginning of, okay, literally that word beginning of means a prerequisite of wisdom. So no fear of the Lord, no wisdom. The Bible makes that very clear. No fear of the Lord, no knowledge. Now we know knowledge is, is, hey, I know it. Wisdom is, hey, I know it and I'm living it out. You can't do that unless you fear the Lord properly. And someone who doesn't properly fear the Lord is oftentimes called a fool. No one in here wants to be called foolish. Now in the New Testament, we have the fear of the Lord, which lends itself more to a, um, like a reverential fear. Uh, I was reading in one uh, Bible dictionary, it defined it as a wholesome dread of displeasing him. Now notice it doesn't say a wholesome dread of him because of our sin. No, it's a wholesome dread of displeasing him. I think about like a kid and a parent, right? In a good relationship, obviously a healthy one. Kids don't want to disappoint their parents. They hold them in such high esteem that I will do whatever I can to please my mom and dad. That's a very small scale. It's the, it's the same idea. I hold God in such high regard that I want everything in my life to be pleasing to him. And the Bible says that's a good thing. Matter of fact, Acts chapter 9, verse 31 is a good example of this. It says, so the church, this is the early church, throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was strengthened. Sound like they were doing pretty good. Living in the fear of the Lord. And in tandem, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. This, this church feared the Lord with that reverential fear. And so when we see the psalmist say, you who are his holy ones, fear the Lord, we ought to take that very seriously. As a matter of fact, there is a guarantee attached to this command. Those who fear him will what? Will lack nothing. You'll have everything that you need. David, notice it says, will lack nothing. This isn't in reference to, okay, so I fear the Lord and he fills my bank account. That's not what this is talking about. We'll have everything you need in this life in order to continue to fear and please and serve and bless and boast and and exalt and magnify God. David even suggests that lions who seem to get whatever they need, whenever they need it, even have times in their life where they're lacking. But those who fear the Lord will never have to experience that. Now remember who he's with. Men who were desperate in debt and discontented. And so he literally instructs them in the psalm how to live a life in the fear of the Lord. So just in case you were wondering, oh, oh, oh yeah, I want that, but how do I? David's like, I got you covered. Okay, so I think it's, an, it's important to note here as well that the fear of the Lord is not just some religious feeling. This isn't like a religious type word. This isn't just a churchy type expression. Oh, the fear of the Lord. Listen, these guys are in a cave hiding out. They're nowhere near a church. They're nowhere near sacri- uh, the, the sacrificial system. They're nowhere near a temple. They're nowhere near any of that. And yet... So, so a lot of us might treat it as like, um, Lord, make me fear you. Like, ah, and I'm just like, I don't know, God thunders outside. And I'm like, oh, the fear of the Lord. No, what is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is clearly action-based. The fear of the Lord, as I can kind of steal from our last sermon series title, is walking worthy of the gospel. That's fearing the Lord. How do we know this? Okay, so let's, let's move on. He asked this rhetorical question. Who doesn't want to see good in their life? I could ask that this morning, and I'm sure most of us, hopefully, if we have our heads on right, we'd be like, me, I want to see good in life. I don't want to experience anything bad. Okay, he says, well, 
Keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from deceitful speech. Turn away from evil. Do what's good. Hey, seek peace. And when you find it, you pursue that. That's fearing the Lord. It's not just some like you, you sit and wait for the Lord to appear and all of a sudden like, ah, oh, this fear of the Lord. No, it's, it's get off your butt and live right. Live worthy. Walk, walk upwardly. Walk as a righteous man. That's fearing the Lord. You could flip it around. Maybe what, ask this question to yourself. What's the fastest and surest way to not see anything good in your life? I would say you go to the comment section on any article on Facebook and just spend some, no, don't do that. Or, or join Twitter, okay? If you want to make sure you don't see anything good ever, go on Twitter. No, but what, what would it be? What's the fastest and surest way to, to not see anything good in your life? Speak evil. Be deceitful. Gossip and slander and lie about other people. Turn away from anything good. Actually, do what is evil. Seek division and disruption among the relationships in your life. And when you find it, pursue that at all costs. That's a sure way of your life to just go down the toilet real quick. It sounds so obvious and so simple, and yet these are the very things that distract and trip us up in this life time and time again. Fear the Lord and lack nothing. I'm going to go ahead and skip an, uh, 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 another passage I had. P- uh, Peter references this. I'll give you the reference. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, uh, Peter is writing a letter to Christians, and he literally quotes this psalm, this section of this psalm in chapter 34. He quotes it multiple times throughout the chapter, which I'll reference later. But uh, if you want to look up that reference, um, he's talking about this idea of living out your Christian life in a good way amongst other believers, and he quotes this passage, Okay. So fear the Lord and lack nothing. But point number four, and lastly this morning, before we kind of start tying everything together, trust in the Lord who hears and saves. Trust in the Lord who hears and saves. Look at verse 15. The Bible says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry for help. The face of the Lord is set against those who do what is evil to remove all memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears, rescues them from their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirit. One who is righteous has many adversities, but the Lord rescues him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Evil brings death to the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be punished. The Lord redeems the life of his servants, and all who take refuge in him will not be punished. And so we have David making this profound statement as a reminder to those in his presence that God sees you. God sees you. He has a watchful eye and an attentive ear towards the righteous man, those who strive to fear the Lord. But his face, don't miss this. The Lord is not attentive to everybody. It says his his face is against those who do what is evil. We have to remember David and this group of 400 some on med that are with him, they're operating under the old covenant, okay? So blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience was a big part of that. So this is a big deal that David is talking about here. Anyone stuck in their evil ways could find themselves rid from of the earth to the point where he says, 
their memory will, uh, of them will be wiped off the face of the earth. So he's like, hey, guys, take this seriously. Yeah, God's ear is attentive to you if you walk uprightly and righteous. And yet those who do evil, listen, not only is this a warning to you, but this is also a comfort to those in your life who are afflicting you. Listen, God will take care of them. And so God will help the humble. Because you might be thinking like, especially thinking about Old Testament or Old Covenant stuff and, and, and everything, it's hard for us under the New Covenant to be thinking like, man, God can be really cruel. He's going to remove all memory of them from the earth. That sounds a bit over the top. Obliterate them from existence. And yet we see, I see, and I want you to see this morning, the grace and mercy and tenderness of God here. Who, what, draws near to those who are crushed and lowly in spirit. He will rescue them and he will save them. David can attest to this. He's just experienced it. He'll experience it time and time again, and he experienced it one day, ultimately. He experienced this firsthand. So let me remind you again, the men who were gathered to David in the cave of Adullam were no doubt distressed, many of them brokenhearted and crushed in their spirit. Uh, F.B. Meyer, he's a Baptist minister uh, in England. He was an evangelist. He has this quote. It says, a bird with a broken wing, an animal with a broken leg, a woman with a broken heart, a man with a broken purpose in life. These seem to drop out of the main current of life into shadow. They go apart to suffer and droop. The busy rush of life goes on without them. But God draws nigh. God draws near to the brokenhearted. He saves those with a crushed spirit, those who are broken and flattened in this life. And yet, David is not shy about the fact that the righteous will have many things go wrong in their life. It's not like you live a righteous life, everything's going to be smooth sailing. David knows this all too well. He by no means leads an easy life, but know this. He says, the more adversities, the more deliverance from the Lord. Yeah, the righteous will have many adversities, but the Lord rescues them from all of them. Not only that, verse 20 indicates that God will keep the righteous man whole and complete. Everything that David had and, and would experience, God promised to protect him, to keep him whole. Uh, there's a prophetic aspect to this verse that I'm going to reference here whenever we close. Um, but, but understanding that the, one of the meanings of this verse could be that God is going to keep Keep the righteous man. Not one of his bones will be broken. I will remain whole. I will remain safe in the Lord's presence. And note this, David had confidence in more than just the rescue of the righteous, but also in the judgment and condemnation of the wicked. You're not just going to protect the righteous, God. I know you will set things right for those who are wicked and evil as well. He trusted that God would bring about just punishment on those who opposed and hated the righteous. Knowing full well, however, when the wrath of the Lord is poured out, those who take refuge in him would not be punished. That is huge. You want to know why? Because today, that points to you and I who are in Christ. That's us. If we are in Christ, that is us. We take refuge in God, and we will never be under his condemnation and his punishment, ever. None of those who trust in him, take refuge in him, will be punished, will be condemned. David claimed that God would rescue 
the soul of his servants, that he would redeem their life. He would literally buy them back, purchase their lives in full, and that they would be found in a place outside of God's condemnation. Where do we see this in the New Testament? A very short, simple, sweet verse, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation, no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. The inspiration of the Holy Spirit at work in the scriptures. King David and the Apostle Paul, one who's under the Old Covenant, one who's under the New Covenant, are saying the exact same thing. It's like David knew something about the freedom from condemnation uh, in Christ. I have no idea how this works, but the Holy Spirit is cool. And we, God's chosen people, must embrace this truth. This is where we have our hope. This is where we place all of our eggs in this basket. There is no condemnation for us who are in Christ and that's an amazing thing because we deserve the condemnation. Because it's, it's, it's as we sang, it's not a confidence in ourself. Yet not I. If it was up to me, God, or if it, was, if it was up to me, yeah, I'd, I'd still be under God's condemnation. But in Christ and his work on the cross, we can experience a life apart from condemnation. So trust in the Lord who hears and saves. And now it's here I want to spend the last couple of minutes of our time together to tie this all together. You may have noticed, for those of you who are like very like to a T, uh, like I am, that I skipped a verse. Some of you are probably like, you skipped a verse? Like, I don't even remember that. I don't know. Maybe you didn't notice, but it was for this reason, okay? So let's read it together as we close. Go back to verse 8. So after sharing his own experience of the Lord's favor and rescue from his enemies, David, okay, Boasting and exalting the name of the Lord and inviting others to do the same, he then shifts and he offers this challenge to the reader, to the hearer of this psalm, to experience God for themselves firsthand. Listen, you can listen to my testimony and that's fine. And I think that's all well and good. And a lot of us do that. We experience God and we, we taste of God secondhand, thirdhand through other people's testimony. But David is now inviting the reader and the hearer of the psalm to say, hey, you firsthand, taste and see that the Lord is good. So verse eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. I'm afraid many of us in our lives, day to day to day, we have this idea in our head of, yes, God is good. Matter of fact, we say it loud and proud, the, the old expression. If some of you grew up in youth group, if I were to say God is good and all the time, that's right, amen. And we say that, amen and amen. Yeah, but do you really know? There's God. See, he's making sure you're paying attention. Do you really know? Do you really know that God is good? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Not through somebody else's testimony, not through somebody else's experience, for yourself. Let me put it this way. To most of us sitting here today, these four sermon points, these instructions that we've drawn out from this text may sound like simple, basic instructions for Christian living. And they are. And they should be accepted that way. And that's fine. But we have to really think about it. You know, a lot of us in this room might read about a, a, a character, a figure like David, right? And we feel as if I don't have a story or a testimony like that. 
I'm not, I'm not like David. I don't have someone after me. I don't have someone, uh, uh, an enemy seeking to kill me, to destroy me, to devour me, hint, hint. Ephesians 6.12, the reality that our struggle in this life is not against flesh and blood, but what? Against principalities and rulers and cosmic powers of darkness. Not only that, in 1 Peter 5.8, that our adversary, Satan himself, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion just looking for who he can devour next. Those seem to tell us otherwise, that we do have a testimony like David. I'm not saying we are David or we have, we have to somehow figure out how to relate to his specific experience, but no, you have an enemy. We must recognize the reality that we all have an adversity. If you're here and you're a Christian, your, your adversary is the devil himself. He attempts to accuse you. That's literally what the name Satan means. He accuses you. He deceives you into thinking you're still under God's judgment. Even though you believe in Christ and place your faith in him, mm, did God really say every part of you is saved? And then you start to question yourself and doubt and live in shame and, 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 and you accuse yourself that you're, you still deserve condemnation. But maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. I'm gonna be careful how I say this. Who's your adversary? Who is my adversary? I'll talk about myself. Who was my adversary before I was saved? Self. Everything I wanted was apart from God. The Bible says very clearly that your flesh and sin nature has you standing condemned right where you sit. And rightfully so, too. A holy God cannot know sin. And yet, know, just as I learned when I was 14 years old, that you have a way out of that. You have a way out of that through the work and person of Jesus Christ. Here's the cool thing, Psalm 3420. The work and person of Jesus Christ, a man whose bones God protected and did not break, fulfilling the scripture that we just read, okay? So I said in Psalm 3420 that that had a little bit of a, pro, or a little bit, that had a prophetic uh, uh, interpretation as well. In John chapter 19, verse 36, okay? John quotes this in his gospel, this exact verse, a man whose bones God, uh, God protected and did not break, okay? He's talking about Christ on the cross. Remember, Jesus is on the cross with two thieves next to him. And when the earth shook, when Jesus gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished. And he, he placed his spirit into God's hands and he died on the cross. The earth shook and the veil tore and the Romans started to panic. So like, hey, we got to get these thieves down. We got to make sure they die first. So what they would do is they would take a club and break the kneecaps of those hanging on the cross so they could not push themselves up for another breath. They would suffocate and die. But, so they did that to the two criminals next to Jesus. But when they came to Christ, he had already died. Therefore, they did not break his knees. Fulfilling this scripture, they didn't have to break his bones. What did they do instead? They pierced him. Very next verse in John says that as well. That they would look at the one who's been pierced. Two scriptures, two Old Testament scriptures fulfilled and two successive, uh, I don't know how to say that word. Successive verses. Thank you, Allie. Two successive verses. That is incredible. And so what am, I trying, what am I trying to say to you in this? Yes, God promised to cast your sin as far as the east is from the west and did it just as much as he did in fulfilling a prophetic word from a man hiding out in a cave thousands of years before. That's, the, that's a God who cares and that's a God who follows through. 
And as we just spoke about, I think, it's, I think it's a good reminder to ourselves every once in a while to reflect on the condemnation to which we were rescued from. Not all the time. R.C. Sproul actually has a book that's really good for that. Uh, it's called Saved from What? A very good, very good reminder of what was I actually saved from. Just as David was, we're all afflicted in some way. And the only place we can find refuge is God, specifically in the person of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. And it's in that sweet moment of salvation that we truly taste and see that the Lord is God. And it's from that sweet taste of God that we can bless him and proclaim his goodness, right? It's, it's, it's when we know from that, from tasting and seeing that when we seek him, he promises we will find him. We will be rescued being made radiant, never again to be ashamed. When we fear him, knowing he is everything that we need, we can then proudly and display that in our conduct. And when we trust him, we can know he is near and he will, and he has in Jesus Christ redeemed us. If not now, ultimately one day forever and forever. Lastly, 1 Peter uh, chapter two, I told you he quoted this Psalm. This must've made a very big impact on Peter's life. 1 Peter chapter two, Verses one through three. This is immediately following his call to holy living and this idea of trusting in the word of God because it endures forever, right? Don't place your faith in anything else, but in the word of God because God's word remains forever. And he says this, therefore, this is 1 Peter chapter two, verse one, therefore rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up in your salvation if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If you've truly done that, you will desire nothing else in your life but the word of God that will help you grow up in your salvation for you to reflect that glory that you've been unveiled to see face to face. He goes on in the next few verses, I'm not gonna read them, to quote Old Testament scripture regarding us as stones being built up as a temple to sacrifice and be pleasing to God. And the cornerstone of that building is Jesus Christ himself, right? The stone which the builders rejected. Some of them stumble over him because uh, they, they, they stumble over him because they disobey his word. The word that we as Christians now ought to desire, but then he reiterates such a profound truth to which I close, verse nine. He says, but you, You're a believer in Christ. He's talking to you, but you, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is our testimony. And if you're here and you don't know Christ, this could be your testimony today. You could be a part of God's chosen people who have received mercy. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good.